0: Luke 22. I'm going to read just uh, verse 30. Where is it? I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) Were you guys at Luke 22? Because I wasn't. All right, here we go. Luke 22. I'm going to read verses 39 and 40, and then I'm going to pray again. And Jesus came out, and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Father, we pray that you would protect us from the temptation of thinking we know all this stuff or the temptation to think that we know better than you say in your word. Lord, that you would help us to be meek and with meekness receive your word that is able to save our souls. Father, we would see Jesus this morning We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us why we need to trust him. And we pray it in his name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. Amen. So when when he mentions, when Luke mentions the place on the Mount of Olives, it's a reference to the Garden of Gethsemane. We know this from Matthew 26, 36, right? Matthew's Gospel is very clear that this place where they would go often, where, where Jesus would kind of go to pray, was this Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means olive press. It's this this picture of a place where the olives are harvested, and then they're crushed. And as they're crushed, what comes out? Olive oil. In the crushing comes the oil. And this is really important because in the scriptures we see olive oil often is what? It's a type of the Holy Spirit. Olive oil is what was used to anoint prophets, priests, and kings. We're told in James 5 that we should, uh, if anyone among you is sick, this applies today. If anyone among you is sick and desires prayer, come before the elders. We'll lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, representing the work of the Holy Spirit, and pray that you might be healed. Oil is is a representative of what God does by his Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by anointing, what God does by his Spirit. And so what we see happening in the life of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke is Luke showing Jesus to be the perfect man, that he is indeed flesh and bone like us, though he is God's only son. And what we're seeing here is, well, well, I should say what we saw last week was Jesus talking about the reasons, or we talking about the reasons for Jesus' suffering. So it's really clear through Luke's gospel that Jesus knew he came to suffer, and he also knew why. He knew why the Lord had called him, why his father had sent him to suffer. But it doesn't mean that the suffering of Jesus would be easy. It doesn't mean that what Jesus went through was easy for him. It was pressure. It was crushing. It was squeezing. And this is what we see this week in this passage. As Jesus is back in the Garden of Gethsemane, really for the last time of his earthly ministry, we're going to see him begin to be crushed. And as he's crushed... What comes out shows us why our faith needs to be in him and not ourselves. So we're going to look at three types of pressure, or I'm sorry, four types of pressure that really reveal Jesus' perfect humanity in this text. We're going to look at uh, from verse uh, 40 all the way to the end of the chapter. So let's let's talk about the first one. This is the one we're going to spend the most time on, okay? And that's what I'm going to call the pressure of loving obedience, apologies uh, of the at the start, something's wrong. Technically, we did we get the PowerPoint to work? It's oh, thanks, Lord. It's working now. Oh, my apologies. Rejected. It's it's worked. So we're fine. But the first I want to talk about is the pressure of loving obedience. Look at verse forty. In verse 40 it says, or verse 41, it says, And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, when Jesus talks about this cup, uh, that that, that image or that metaphor of a cup in Scripture is, is one of two things. It's a cup of blessing. As in what the psalmist says in Psalm 23 my cup overflows, right? Or it's a cup of wrath, of judgment. And so Jesus here is not saying, Lord, take away the cup of blessing from me. He's talking about this cup of wrath or this judgment that he's going to experience. So now Jesus knew what this was going to be like. He he had an an understanding uh, of things that are really, in in some ways, a mystery to us. He knew that when he would go to the cross, when his blood was shed to establish this new covenant that we talked about last week, that when he was going through this, this would be more than just a physical form of suffering. There was an atonement being made. This is why, as we saw last week, he connected uh, his spilt blood with the Passover lamb. And in a real sense here, what's happened is, is Jesus knows that he is the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world, and he knows how difficult it is, but in his prayer, what's he doing? He's submitting to that. He's saying, Lord, this is what you want to do. If there's no other way, then this is what I'll do. John, one of the, the three uh, of the inner circle of Jesus, three disciples that was closest to Jesus, wrote this in his epistle. Jesus Christ, the, the one who is truly righteous, is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Jesus knew this was going to happen, and this was a big deal, but he trusted that this was the good will of his father. Now, this doesn't mean that he's just kind of casual or stoic about this. Like he's going, well, all right, that's good. I got this. We're going to press on and do this. No? What does it say in verse 43? I'm sorry, verse 40. Yeah, verse 43. It says, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. So, So he's praying, God, not your will. Not my my will, but yours be done. An angel comes in in his presence, strengthens Jesus that the father's hearing his prayers. But it says in verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there's two opinions about this. Some say that he actually was experiencing, there's a a word for it that I'm not going to Technical word for it that I'm not going to try to pronounce, but he was experiencing a, a, a medical reality where his blood capillaries were bursting because of the stress. And they were mixing with his sweat as, as as he was there praying. Others say no, he was just sweating so profusely that it was dripping off his face. And this is what the disciples were seeing. Either way, we're talking about a serious amount of stress. That's what the word agony means. Agony means extreme suffering. So that Jesus, as he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's being crushed, even just by the idea of having to atone for the sins of the world, he's he's feeling something that we can only imagine. I used to think that I do really well under pressure. I, I used to almost pride myself on being able to handle things that other people didn't seem to be able to handle. I was that guy uh, at, at the church that we came from in California. If there's a big issue, send John to do it. An unbeliever in the, uh, that we know in the fellowship uh, passes away, John does the funeral. A counseling situation that's really hard to do, John does the counseling. A crisis happens at church, and we had some weird things happen at church, man, I gotta say. Uh, send John to go deal with it. I was the guy, and I pride myself on, I can handle this, I got, the, I, I got this, the Lord's going to give me what I need, I'm here, this is where I'm at. And then about four years ago, the pressure of life and ministry began to build and build and build, and I came to a point where I thought, I just can't do this anymore. I couldn't handle the pressure. And, and it's funny because when we read this, you almost get a sense of Jesus is right there on that edge of high Don't know if I can do this. But what does he do? When he's at that place of agony, what does he do? He prays through the agony to obedience to his father. Why? He loves his father. He loves his father. And so he prays through it. I think this is really important because that phrase that's there, prayed more earnestly, this is really, it shows how, how Jesus is willing to humbly submit to God's will through prayer. I wish I could say to you that, hey, I just followed Jesus' example. When I was hitting that wall, I just submitted to God through prayer. But it wasn't that clean. It's, it's something I find myself having to go back to over and over again, resubmitting myself to God's will. But the good news is Jesus did this and he did it successfully. And this is what the scripture says about this submission in Philippians chapter two, verse eight says, "Christ Jesus humbled Himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross." I want you to think about this—a criminal's death. We're going to come back to the end. Look, look at verse forty again. What does it say? Jesus says in verse forty, right, when he goes to pray in Gethsemane, he tells his disciples, "Right, pray that you may not enter into." temptation. Look at also verse 45. After Jesus presses through this agony in prayer, verse 45 says, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. In other words, they're, they're so weight, weighted down emotionally by what Jesus has been teaching them about his predictions of his death, about the fact that one of them is going to betray him. They're so physically and emotionally exhausted that even though he says you need to pray, they, just, they, they can't. They just feel like they can't. They just fall asleep. Now, obviously, some of them were awake enough to pick out what he was saying and record it later on. But for the most part, they weren't really laboring in prayer with him. They weren't there to support him as maybe he wanted them to. And he says to them, verse 46, the same thing. Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray. Why? That you may not enter into temptation. Now, this is important because To follow Jesus, listen, to follow Jesus is to see prayer as loving obedience, especially when we're under pressure. I say that as someone who falls radically short in doing this. When I'm under pressure, my default position is to put my shoulder down and push harder. Oh, things are tough. Too many things to do. Just come on, grind it out. Get it. Get it done. Move harder. People aren't doing what they're meant to do. Be firmer. Be clearer. Push. Use your strength. Come on. This is my default position. Jesus, when he's under pressure, he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. What do you want? Father, I trust you. Now, now, Luke has wanting us to see Jesus as this perfect example, but also he's wanting see us, see, us to see Jesus as, as the one who succeeds where we fail. See, he, here's the thing. What Jesus is doing here in, in succeeding where we fail, he's also setting an example for us. He's given us a hope that we can actually find relief from the pressure as we pray. It's praying under pressure is, is how we find peace and how we guard. Listen, we guard against the temptation to run away from God's will. It's too hard. I don't want to do it. But when we're in that pressure and thinking, Lord, I, I know I should want to love you above all things, but I just don't want to do it right now. And so you want, you're tempted to run away. No, it's when we're in that place that we press into the Lord and we speak to him honestly. And let's be honest, when, when we're in that place, it's usually because the, the, the weight of the world, the circumstances that we're in, are so weighing us down. The cares and the worries, we're so weighed down by those things, and the temptation is to go, God isn't going to take care of me, I'm going to have to make, take care of myself. Isn't that how, It sounds so foolish when we say it out loud, doesn't it? God's not going to take care of me, I'm going to have to take care of myself. That's, it's nuts, but this is what we do. This is why we have these really common verses. In fact, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Some of you guys have this memorized. I'm reading it in the New Living Translation, so you may not have it memorized in this uh, this version, but a lot of you probably have this memorized. Listen, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your heart and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. See, when Jesus was feeling the pressure of loving obedience, and there's a pressure to it. When we say, Lord, I, I, I want to serve you, I want your will to be not mine, there's a pressure to that. But what's happening? That pressure is squeezing out, in Jesus' case, squeezing out that good character. His, it's showing his trustworthiness, that he indeed is the anointed one. He's the Christ. So that's the first thing the pressure of love and obedience. The second thing is this the pressure of intentional enemies. I don't know if you guys have had the experience of having someone who actually does not like you, but uh, it's not a fun experience. Look at verse 47. And while Jesus was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. And he drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But, But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now we know, don't we, from last week that Jesus said this was going to happen. One of them is going to betray him. And we know, of course, it's Judas. But here's what's interesting about this, that when this... When Judas comes to betray him with a kiss, what he's doing is he's greeting him as the way a disciple would greet his rabbi. That's the what you would do. You would grab onto their arms. You kiss both sides of their cheeks. You you would this way to show honor to your rabbi. And as we know from the other gospels, in doing so, he's identifying Jesus from the rest of the particularly different looking than anybody else. Kind of just blended in, but he's identifying. And what really blows me away here is here's the guy who's betraying Jesus, and Jesus is engaging with him. In one of the other Gospels, he actually refers to Jesus as friend. I'm sorry, to Judas as friend. He's engaging with him. I don't know about you, but again, my default position when somebody, I know someone doesn't like me, doesn't want anything to do with me, I'm like, fine, don't need you, whatever. I just blank them. That's what I do. Defriend them on Facebook. This is what we do. But Jesus engages with Judas. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Judas, I know you're going to do this, but do you understand what you're doing? Verse 49, And when those who were around him saw what would happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Remember, they said they had two swords. Jesus said it would be enough. Verse 50, And when one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear, but Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and he healed him. Now, the other gospels tell us was, was Peter. Luke, for some reason, is being gracious. Probably because probably because all the disciples were thinking the same thing. We got two swords, let's fight. Makes me feel a bit better about myself, that I'm not the only person that says, come on, let's do it. I mean, that's my default position. Someone wants to, to get in my face, I'm going to throat punch him. But Jesus says, no more of this. Stop it. And he even, I love that he even takes the ear of this servant and patches it up. He heals him. You see, Jesus here is healing the damage done by his impulsive disciples. Well, what happens next? Verse 52 says, Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out, against, uh, out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's standing against the demonic influences behind the works of Judas and behind the works of these religious leaders. He's saying, he's, he's calling it out. He's standing it against. Him. He's saying, you know what? You didn't come to get me before. He, I know what your schemes are. If you remember, they're wanting to do it in private because they don't want to cause a ruckus during the holiday season. Jesus says, I know what you're doing, and I know who is behind it. This is demonic. Now, he's not ignoring the responsibility of these religious leaders. What he's doing is he sees the, deep, the, the demonic influence behind them. And this is important. Because, listen, we have enemies. Sometimes they are people who don't like us for whatever reason. But most of the time, they're just pawns of this enemy this, this being we call Satan with his demons who wants to drag us away from Christ, wants to deceive us away from Christ, which is why Peter would years later write this. Listen, the apostle Peter would write, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. The whole book of 1 Peter talks about the various ways that we suffer as we follow Jesus. And Peter's basically saying, behind this, is the enemy. Because the enemy wants to take the suffering that you go through and say, see, you shouldn't trust God because you're suffering. A good God wouldn't let you suffer. That's the lie of the enemy. Happens to be a lie that people on the God channel talk about all the time. It's a lie. Because God, in his goodness, allows us to suffer as he allowed his own son to suffer. Now, there's something else, though. In Jesus doing this, in Jesus submitting to this demonic attack and actually being crucified by these wicked men, you know what ends up happening? He ends up defeating the whole enemy who wanted to have him crucified in the first place. This is is the the, the beautiful irony of what Christ does. Listen to this in Colossians chapter 2. Says that Jesus cancels the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities, that's the demons behind all these wicked deeds. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Now, it's not just the fact that the enemy lies to us and says, oh, a good God would never let you suffer. Listen, also, the enemy lies to us and says to us, and you're, therefore you're suffering only because, or you're suffering by a good God only because you're so wicked and you now have to pay for your sins. That's another lie. He's not, he doesn't call us to pay for our own sins. Christ paid for our sins on the cross. And there's demonic resistance about it all the time. (laughs) See, we have an intentional uh, enemy who's always lying to us. He's always pressuring us, telling us, God's not worthy to be trusted. Jesus didn't die for you. He might have died to set an example for you. And he did, by the way. That's true. The enemy loves to take a truth and twist it. Oh, he died maybe to set an example for you. But he didn't pay for anything. That's up to you, man. You've got to get it right you got to sort it out. No. When Jesus stood his ground and submitted to that suffering on the cross, he paid for our sin so that when we feel the pressure of the intentional enemy, we can say, you know what? I might be weak, and I deserve any suffering I go through, but my God sent his only son to die for me to make me right with him. I can trust him. about the next bit. This is the pressure of unfaithful friends. Look at verse 54. Then they seized him and led Jesus away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed at a distance. And when they had kindled the fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a a little later, someone else saw him and said, You are also one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an interval of an hour, uh, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, when he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Peter failed exactly as Jesus said he would, didn't he? And, and Luke gives us a lot of detail here. It's like Luke is wanting to paint the picture, okay, Peter failed. But it wasn't just like, you, you might get this impression in some of the other Gospels that it was like, okay, in a really short amount of time, he denied the Lord. But no, this is like, he did it, some time passes, he does it again, same night, some time passes, he does it Again. Like there was time while he was around the fire for him to think, no, it's true, I do know him. Or to leave and get away from temptation. But he doesn't, he stays there just as Jesus said he would and he denies the Lord three times before the cock crows. And when the cock crows, what does it say? Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Not Peter looked at the Lord, the Lord looked at Peter. I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus is being interrogated. As we'll see in a a minute, there's abuse going on. he's, he's, He's going to die. He knows he's going to die. And there's supposed to be one of his best mates hanging out by the fire and just as he said he would, denies Jesus three times. And when he hears the cock crow, Jesus looks at him. Now, we don't know what his look was. Like, I don't know what his look was. was, a, was a, I don't think it was a kind of look. It wasn't like that mom look, you know. I think it was, you know, maybe it was a look of compassion. Maybe it was just a look of knowing. Whatever the look was, Jesus looked at Peter exactly as he needed. That eye contact was exactly what Peter needed to remember the Lord's in control he knows exactly when we're going to fail and how and he's given a promise for us to be restored remember what he had said back in verses 31 and 32 remember peter satan's asking you for asking for you uh, as uh, to sift you like wheat but i have prayed that your faith may not fail and when you're restored strengthen your brother remember that so, so, when Jesus says, I've prayed for you that your faith won't, uh, won't fail, and when you return, you know what that is? It's a promise you're going to return. I'm praying for you, I'm going to bring you back. And so, I imagine when, when Jesus looks at Peter, that Peter's kind of going, I've done it, I, I, I failed. But he also is remembering, he said, I'd be restored. And as he runs away and weeps, barely thinking, how is that ever going to happen? Because they're going to kill him. How am I going to be restored? I've denied my Lord. The the, the greatest friend I've ever had. How how am I possibly going to be restored? I know he said it, but how is it going to happen? But you know what? How's it happen? After Jesus is resurrected, right? You guys remember the story? He's resurrected. He's, He's been seen by the disciples a couple times. And the disciples, Peter says, you know what? I'm going fishing. I know Jesus is alive but I have no idea what this means and I don't know what I'm supposed to do so I'm going to go back to my old job. I'm going to fish. He fishes all night. He catches nothing. There's Jesus on the beach making breakfast. So Peter knows it's him, takes off his, his or puts on his outer garment, dives in the water, gets up there and after they eat breakfast and I can't imagine the, the awkwardness of that breakfast. Jesus says, uh, starts beginning to restore Peter and it starts with this in John chapter 21. And when they had finished breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And you know how the story goes. Now, now this, is, this is amazing because Jesus is under the, this pressure of unfaithful friends. He says, you're going to, to betray me. Or you know, One of you is going to betray me, and, and another gospel says you're all going to be scattered. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. Before the stuff even gets really heated and, and really scary, you're going to deny me then. But Jesus, it, the way he handles the pressure of faithful friends, unfaithful friends, I mean, is by guaranteeing there's a way that they can be restored. He already has in his mind how they're going to be restored. That's why he's going to the cross. He already knows the fruit of the restoration. Peter's going to strengthen his brethren. This is how Jesus handles the pressure. Again, you know, when, when my friends have been unfaithful, I've wanted to distance myself. It's hard. You know, one of the things about being uh, in ministry, one of the things that you're tempted by if you're a, a lead pastor, and any, I know a couple of you guys here have had pastoral experience, and one of the temptations of having being in, in leadership, pastoral leadership, is the temptation not to have real friends. Because you, you feel like you can't be open. If you're too open, you'll stumble somebody, or they won't respect you, or they won't actually... Follow your lead. Or you've been open. And then they've burned you or they've been unfaithful or they've left. And the temptation is there. But listen, listen. What Jesus is doing here with, with, with Peter is a great example to us. It's a great example to me as a leader. is to say, Lord, no. Even when there's, people have been unfaithful to me, by your grace, because you've died and rose from the dead... I want to keep that door open because I need faithful friends. See, here's the reality. Your friends are going to be unfaithful to you and you have already been an unfaithful friend. (gasps) Not me. Yes, you. All of us have. We can't handle the pressure of unfaithful friends, but Jesus did. And he made a way for us to be motivated and empowered to be the kind of friends that we need for one another. Here's the last bit the pressure of religious persecution. Verse 63. Now, when men were holding, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is that that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Jesus experienced violence and slander. I don't know if if this is coming to your mind right now. I hope it has. But we have brothers and sisters around the world, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are right now experiencing the same thing. They're spoken against. They're vilified. They're marginalized. They're beaten. And it, it's interesting because I, I look at this and I think, Lord, I don't know if I would handle this. Again, I've been mocked, and, and I've, I was okay with that. I've been mocked a few times for being a Christian. You know, over the years, I've been a Christian for 34 years. I've probably been mocked, I don't know, 20, 25 times. Not that, really not that much. Less than once a year. Not too bad. Often by people that I knew best. And one of the things I learned was when people mock you for being a Christian, and, or they're really, especially if they're really, uh, there's a lot of uh, sort of like bitterness and there's, their, their, their mockery is really acidic towards you, you know. Oftentimes, those are the people that are getting most convicted. And so I've learned, you know, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks is the one that got hit. So so if I'm, if I'm trying to show Jesus and share Jesus, and I'm walking in humility, and I'm owning up to my faults and, and, and pointing past myself to him and people go, you're ridiculous, that stuff's stupid. And I keep my composure and I walk in grace. Guess what? I know, oh, God's doing something here. Mockery, I, I've learned mockery's not that bad. It's actually a good indication that, okay, God might be using me. But, I, you know, I've never been physically threatened. I think I might have mentioned this last week. I don't know if it's because I'm a bigger dude or what, but I've never been physically threatened for my faith. And I, I do worry about this sometimes. Not because I'm afraid to get beat up. The older I get, the more that's going to probably be happening. But I'm afraid I would give that throat punch. Jesus doesn't like it when we throat punch people, just to be clear. It's not the right response. But, but I think, oh, this is what I would do. I'd, I'd default back that. But what does Jesus do? Jesus, who could call down a legion of angels Who, as we see in another gospel, in the garden when the soldiers came and arrested, they said, we are looking for Jesus. Are you Jesus? He says, I am. And they all fall down on their keisters. Jesus, who has all authority, submits to this because he's going to die for the very people who are doing this. I like the fact that Luke says blasphemy, and I think Luke did this on purpose because you remember who Luke was in ministry with. Who did Luke tour with in mission work? Paul. And who is Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul, a religious blasphemer. Whom Jesus radically changed and used to bring many to himself. Jesus experienced violence and slander, and this was real pressure. He felt real pain when they smacked him. He felt real grief when they blasphemed him. And it says in verse 66, when the day came, uh, the assembly of the elders gathered, uh, elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. Now we know this is true because we just saw this in chapter 20, didn't we? Right? They're asking him all these pointed questions. He's giving them these answers that they can't even rebut. And then finally, he asks them a question, and they don't answer because they don't want to admit that he is who he said he is. So he says in verse sixty nine, "But from now on, the Son of Man—that's a claim of Messiah to be Messiah or the Christ. "Now Now, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the Power of God." Now he's not just saying here that he's the expected Messiah. He's saying he's the Messiah that they didn't expect. The Messiah, God's chosen king, who will reign next to God himself. And so they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Now, he's not denying that he is. This is kind of a a Greek euphemism as a way to say, well, you just said it, didn't you? In other words, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? And they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from our own lips. I want you to understand this, okay? Jesus, even when he's being beaten and mocked and his friends are all unfaithful to him and he sees the work of the enemy coming in like a flood and, and, and he, he's struggling to submit to the, to in love and obedience to his Father, even in that pressurized place, he will not deny who he is. He can't deny who he is. It's who he is. Gosh, this is so important for us because listen, listen, the fact that these religious leaders didn't believe, they knew exactly who he was claiming to be. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. The fact that they wouldn't believe it, guess what, didn't change who Jesus is. So if you're new to this Jesus stuff, listen, we're not trying to convince you to believe who Jesus is. We're trying to present to you who Jesus is. It's up to you if you want to trust him or not. If you don't trust him, it doesn't change who he is. It only changes your relationship with God. And I want you to notice as well. What is his only crime? Why are they going to crucify him? Because he is who he is. He dies a criminal's death specifically because he is the Son of Man. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. That's why they're crucifying him. In the Psalms, there are these Psalms that are called what we call messianic Psalms. They're often Psalms of David, and they looked forward to the time when when there would be that that descendant of David who would sit on the throne forever, that Messiah, that anointed one, that king. These Psalms look forward to that. And the first Psalm uh, that really deals with this explicitly is Psalm chapter 2. Listen to what it says. The Psalm ends like this. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now listen. We hear this, and, and it's tempting for us, it's tempting for us to miss what we need to see the most. How do we respond to this? How do we respond to see Jesus in the Garden of the Gethsemane being crushed like an olive? How do we respond to this? The first thing is, we need to ask ourselves, do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Do you actually believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Is, is your Is your Christianity about just being a part of some community, about finding a better reason for life, about adding hope when you didn't feel there was hope, about explaining tough answers? Or do you believe, Jesus, you are who you said you are? Because that's where it has to begin and end. Listen. People are persecuted for all kinds of reasons. Different people from different religions are persecuted for all kinds of of reasons, and Christians aren't often persecuted because they believe in a Jesus, but because they believe in the Jesus. See, lots of religions religions believe in a Jesus, a Jesus who was a good teacher, a Jesus who who uh, was a good example, a Jesus who was a great prophet. But Christians are persecuted because we say, no, we believe in the Jesus. He alone is Lord. And we got to do what he calls us to do. And we trust that he is trustworthy because we saw what happened when the pressure was on him. We saw what came out of him. But also I think it's important for us to to ask ourselves this question. What area of pressure proves, most proves, that you need to trust Jesus and not yourself. So these things that Jesus went through, the pressure of loving obedience, God calls us to live in a way that we just don't really want to live in. There's a pressure there. The pressure of intentional enemies, the fact that we have this enemy who just constantly lies to us. The pressure of unfaithful friends. Man, I thought Christians would be better than they are. The pressure of religious persecutions. People are blaming us for the planet being destroyed because we believe it one day will be destroyed. You don't care. It's not true, usually. I, I saw a channel, this is kind of a tangent, but I saw a Channel 4 documentary that said global warming was the main cause of global warming was American evangelicals. I hid for about a week. The point is, listen, the pressure of religious persecution. How dare you say that someone can't just choose their own identity? How dare you say that that, uh, two consenting adults can't have whatever kind of sex they want to have? How dare you say that, uh, that anyone should ever submit to anyone else? How dare you say there's only one way to God? How dare you? That pressure, how do you respond to that? Because here's the reality, guys. When we talk about all these different kinds of pressure, when Jesus was under those pressures, he always did what was right. Do you see why we need to trust him and not ourselves? See, where we fail, he succeeds. That's the gospel. Where we fail, he succeeds. See, you know how we're going to learn to follow our God in love and obedience we're going to follow Jesus because we saw, no, Lord, <laughs> he rose you from the dead. The Father rose you from the dead. We're going to be resurrected from the dead. We're going to, to be able to, to stand against the enemy. Why? Because we know that our Jesus has d- disarmed the enemy. Oh, we're still in a battle with him, but Jesus took the bullets out of his gun. We know when he's saying, ah, God wouldn't let you suffer or, uh, you know, uh, oh, oh you're, you're, you're definitely not loved by him. We know that Jesus took those, the ammunition out so we can say, no, we believe God and not you. We can handle the pressure of unfaithful friends because our Jesus is a faithful Savior who motivates us to love even when we're not loved in return. And I've got to say, in my 34 years of experience, The more I seek to love people, the more I realize it's not always reciprocated, but also how sweet it is when it is reciprocated. And how much it's really God doing that work. Often it's the people that I'm wanting to love the most that love me back the least, and the people that I've been neglecting that love me the most. Because it's God who's loving through his people. And the pressure of religious persecution. You know how you're gonna overcome this? Man, if Jesus was willing to suffer, I'm going to be willing to suffer. Listen. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. The word tribulation, phipsis, I think is how you pronounce it in the Greek, literally means pressure. You're going to have pressure. But the Lord's going to allow you to have that pressure so that when you're squeezed and when I'm squeezed, Jesus comes out. People see him. Let's, let's, pray. let's pray that happens. Father, we just want to commit afresh to you again this morning. Lord, we feel these pressures. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've shown us that we don't have to be ashamed of the difficulty of that pressure. That we can be honest before you. We can wrestle with these things. We thank you, Lord, that... That it, it, we see in Jesus, he wanted his friends to be faithful and they weren't, Lord. That shows us, one, his faithfulness, but also that we want to be more faithful as friends as we're walking with each other through these difficult things. Father, help us, above all things, to see that where we've failed, Jesus has succeeded. May our faith be in him. Please, Lord, we pray that you would do this in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen, amen.